Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're continuing a series today, and really the question to ask this whole series is this. What happens when Jesus intersects your life? What happens? What is it like to encounter Jesus firsthand? And I love the song we were just singing, and it really, we didn't even coordinate this. Sometimes we do, but even the song we were just singing that God is the same God, right? Like the same God 2,000 years ago is the same God interacting in our lives today. That he's not just up in the heavens floating around somewhere with little or no connection to his creation. No, the whole theme of the Bible is that God is with us, that he has come to dwell with us, and that not only was he there 2,000 years ago, but he is here with us today, right here in this very room, right here among us. And man, there's power in that when we think about that, right? That when we encounter Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, it requires you to do two things. It requires you to answer who Jesus is, and it always requires you to adjust your life. That when you finally see Jesus for who he is and all of his glory, it requires you to answer the question, who you are, Jesus, and it requires you to adjust who you are in your life. In fact, this is the whole reason John wrote this book uh, that we're about to get into today. The whole reason. John 20, 31 says this, but these things, this book is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one, like we talked about last week. The Son of God, that you would answer who Jesus is. And then it says this, and that believing, that by believing you may have life in his name. That we answer who Jesus is and we adjust who we are. And today we're going to look at the encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Jacob's well. And uh, this is actually like an aerial landscape of uh, Jacob's well. It's still there today. It's actually in the West Bank, so it's in the Palestinian-controlled area of, uh, of the Middle East there. It's right there. You can actually go to it. It's actually kind of a place right now that doesn't get a lot of people visiting uh, because of where it's located, but it's right here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this story, but I want to pick it up because we've, we've got just a little time here, and it's a big story. Like, there's 42 verses given to this encounter. So let's pick it up quick in verse 1 of John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and, and departed again for Galilee. So here's what's going on. There's dissension going on. There's conflict going on, not with Jesus, but People are saying things about Jesus. They're trying to really start, start this rivalry between John and Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here to do. So he departs the area, he leaves the area, and he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And then verse 4 is very interesting. It says this, but he had to pass through Samaria. In fact, some of your translations says, say he needed to pass through Samaria, which is very weird, because let's think about this for a minute. 
Does Jesus need anything? Like when we think in terms of need goes, we don't think Jesus needed this. But the the text gives us this idea that he needed this. There were multiple, and this is what's really weird about this. There were multiple ways to get to where he was going. In fact, the way he wanted to go was the least popular route. It was the route that no one would take. It'd be like going through Gastonia and choosing, willingly choosing to take the business 74 and hit every single stoplight. And no one in their right mind would do that if there was, I mean, if there was no traffic on the bypass, if it was clean and clear, like we're all going to choose the bypass every time, right? But who would choose to hit every stoplight? Like that's kind of what you're reading here. Like the disciples were probably thinking, why are we going this way? Jesus follows here divine coordinates. We're going to talk about this for a minute here, but Jesus follows divine coordinates. Jesus knew exactly why he needed to go to Samaria. He had divine coordinates on the GPS of heaven for what was about to happen. And this is what's crazy to think about. We haven't even got to the Samaritan woman. But here's the truth, and this is kind of what we know going into it. That long before this Samaritan woman ever had a clue about anything, Jesus was pursuing her. He was coming after her. So verse 5 says this. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, or Shechem, Near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now, I don't want to miss this part because it's pretty interesting. We talked about this a little last week, that we all have these misconceptions of who Jesus is. And last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is not some sissy guy. Right, Like he's not this, this way we see him over here. He's not like just completely helpless. But here's the other thing that we kind of need to remember and balance in the weight of who Jesus is. He's also not Superman, right? Like he's not on the road floating with angels' wings on the road to this well. He's walking in the same dirt his disciples are walking in. And the text actually tells us here that when he gets to the well... He's winded, which is so amazing when you think about it, that he is so much a part of the human experience. Last, this literally happened to me two days ago. I, I do a lot of hiking, and me and my wife were on a hike, and we were walking up this hill, and, and sometimes it gets me, and sometimes it doesn't. I get to the top of the hill, and I'm just like, man, I'm so winded. It's because it's the human condition, right? Like, we are... We are physical beings. We are limited in our capacities in a physical body. And I love this because it says right there in the text, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he decides to sit down. And he sits here at Jacob's well, which is right here in this area, right here. And this is what I find interesting. Jacob's well is like a half a mile from the city of Shechem. And what's crazy is when you start looking at every place in Scripture that the Bible mentions this location, it's chalked full of stuff. In fact, let me give you a few of them. Genesis 12, 
Abraham, you remember he's, he's journeying into the promised land? This is the first place in the promised land where he builds an altar and worships God. Right here in Shechem, right here at Jacob's well. Genesis 35, Jacob, you remember the story of Jacob? You remember Jacob? He actually buries his false idols here. He says no more to false gods and worshiping them. He makes a stand there in Genesis 35 and he puts the idols in the ground and he says no more. Our family's not going to do this anymore. Genesis 37, Jacob, this is kind of a weird story. Jacob is sold in slavery right here in Shechem. And what's really even more interesting is he's also his final resting place. Remember, he, he goes to Egypt, and then the Israelites bring his bones back to the promised land. You know where those bones rest? Right here in this area, Shechem, Jacob's well. And then Joshua 24, Joshua 24, right before Joshua dies, he gives his final instructions Right here in Shechem. You guys probably remember the story. Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Guess where he said it? Right here. Jacob's well, Shechem. Same place. It was a place of worship. But this place of worship became a place of war. In 2 Kings 17, we learn that after the Assyrians destroyed Israel's northern kingdom that many pagans from other lands wound up settling in Samaria and began to intermarry with the Jewish people that were still there. So this created this animosity to the pure-blood Jews against the Jews who were intermarrying with these other people. And there, were, there was idol worship going on. But then there was a time where these Samaritans, these, these people that had intermarried, they decided we're no longer going to worship those things. So around 400 B.C., they decide to build a temple to worship the one true God on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. And so they worship God there. And then this is how bad the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. How bad they hated them. They went in, the Jewish people went in and destroyed the temple that they were worshiping in. And again, they weren't worshiping a false god. They were worshiping God the Father, our God. They were worshiping him. They go in and destroy the temple. And this created, this worsened and deepened the gap between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people, this racial divide that you see. In fact, most good Pharisees would pray for the Samaritans. You know how they prayed for their enemies? They prayed that God would not allow them into heaven. Like that was their sincere prayer. It brings a lot of new meaning to what it means to pray for your enemies. But this is where you find them at. And I love this story. Because what God is going to do by the end of this story is he's not just going to redeem a person. He's going to redeem a group of people and begin to erode away racism that's there. This unifying power of Jesus Christ to reconcile the racism that we find here among the Jews and among the Samaritans. So look at the end of verse 6. It says this. Jesus, he's sitting at the well and it was about the sixth hour. So the Jewish time for this would be around high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So where are the disciples going? 
You can read there in the text. Where are the disciples going? They're going to the city, right? Where's this woman coming from? We don't 100% know, but a good guess would probably be the city because that's where everyone lived, right? And so you can imagine this, and it's definitely not in the scripture. This is just kind of one of those imagined things. Imagine with me that this could be the case. Imagine with me the idea of these disciples going into the city, this woman coming from the city, maybe on the same road with the disciples. Can you imagine what that interaction was like when they passed this woman? Chances are, if that happened, chances are these disciples probably completely ignored this woman. Why? Several reasons. One, she was a woman. And at this time in history, this was something that you just didn't do as a man. You didn't, you didn't even say hello. You didn't even greet someone. Two, she was a Samaritan. We already said there was racial animosity going on here. But three, she's alone. She's by herself in the middle of the day coming to this well. And if you saw something like that, you would automatically assume something, something not, is not right here. That they would probably ignore a woman that was, that was like this. And, and I want to ask a question. Have you ever felt ignored by someone? Have you ever felt the sting of feeling ignored by someone? So like for me, and some of you are like, why is Chuck E. Cheese on the screen? Um, I remember taking my kids to see Chuck E. Cheese, right, at the pizza place. And it was one of their birthdays, I think. And we're at Chuck E. Cheese, and my kids are a little younger, but they're old enough to, like, think that Chuck E. Cheese is, is hung the moon. And they still think I hung the moon. And so we're walking to see Chuck E. Cheese, and Chuck E. Cheese is walking towards me, and my kids are with me, and I'm thinking, this is a chance for me to show how cool Dad is, you know? So I go up to give Chuck E. Cheese a high five, all right? And Chuck E. Cheese puts his hand up, and I'm thinking... It's going to be great. My kids are going to think I'm the coolest dad in the world. I know Chuck E. Cheese, right? And as he gets to me, he totally does this. He goes. <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese completely dissed me. And my kids, my older two kids are snickering a little bit because they already they were like, he doesn't know them. My younger kid is devastated. He's just like, yeah, they couldn't believe how bad Chuck E. treated me. And here's the thing, that's a dumb illustration. It still sticks with me to this day. My kids still laugh about Chuck E. Cheese dissing me. But, but here's the truth. Has this ever happened to you? The truth is we all have had times in our lives where we have felt ignored by people. And, and here's the thing, not only have we felt that, we've done that to people. We've done it unintentionally at times. And we've done it intentionally at times. In fact, maybe you're coming in the room this morning, and this is going to get real, real, real quick. And you're wondering, does anyone even notice me? Does, does, does Jesus even notice me? Does God even know that I'm here? This is kind of where we find this woman. In a place of neglect and isolation. And here's the thing. If you're here this morning and that's you, let me just tell you, Jesus sees you. 
Maybe your greeter didn't see you this morning. Maybe someone beside you is not seeing you this morning. Jesus sees you. And he sees this woman. And here's what I love. He forfeits malicious racism and misogynist rules right off the bat. He forfeits these things. He talks to her. And for a devout Jewish man to speak to a woman in this time, it's unheard of. It's not a rule. It's not like in the Bible, like you're not supposed to do that. It's not written down that that's not supposed to happen. But for a devout Jewish man, he wouldn't even speak to his own wife or daughter in public, much less this woman. In fact, there was a group of Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And you know why? This was like a real thing back in the first century. The reason they were called that is as they would walk down the road, if they saw a woman in the distance... They would close their eyes and keep walking. So you can imagine how this is going to work out for me if I I literally just opened my eyes there because I was afraid I was going to fall off the stage. They were bruised and bleeding because every time they saw a woman, they were so for this this made-up rule that they wouldn't even look at a woman. They'd just rather take the bruises and the bleeding. And here's the other thing Jesus does. Jesus puts himself in debt to this woman. Think about it. The God of the universe not only acknowledges her, he asks her for a favor. He's like, can you, can you give me some water? The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, Jesus didn't care that she was Samaritan. That's what I love about Jesus. Jesus didn't really care. In fact, the the chapter before, Jesus is literally spending time with a moral, Jewish, religious person who's very moral and who's very devout. And here he's spending time with an immoral, non-Jewish person. He doesn't care. It doesn't bother him. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, he pointed out, look at this, he pointed out in just this one phrase. He pointed out who he was, he pointed out what he had to offer, and he pointed out how she could receive what it is he was offering. Jesus is fostering spiritual curiosity with this woman. He's fostering it. He's he's stirring it up. But she doesn't fully see it yet because living water at this term, when we hear this word, we automatically think spiritual. But it wasn't always like that. This term was a term for water that's coming up or springing up from the ground, springing up into a well. It's, It's really the idea of fresh and clean water. Like this is how the Jewish people knew this phrase. This last summer, we went to the beach, and uh, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but when I go stay at the beach somewhere, I hate drinking water from the tap. It tastes like salt water, and maybe it's in my mind, but like my wife sends me to the grocery store, we're at the beach, and she says, get some, some drinking water, you know, some of the, the gallon jugs. And so I walk in, and literally like the whole shelf is devoted to drinking water. And you walk by, and you see words like distilled water. And you see words like spring water. And I'm thinking to myself in the grocery store, 
Who in their right mind would ever go with distilled water? That's such a boring name for water. Why wouldn't you go with spring water? It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds fresh, like clean water, right? This is kind of what the woman was thinking Jesus was talking about here. She was thinking at this point, oh, you just mean like spring water, like good water to drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably what Jesus means here. No, she's clearly not getting it. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. This well, Jacob's well, is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but she asked this question, are you greater than Jacob? This is a sarcastic question. She's being sarcastic with Jesus. She doesn't really think for a minute that he's greater than Jacob. It, it kind of is expecting a negative answer here. This woman was really concerned about how Jesus would obtain the water that's in the well. Because that's what she thinks he's talking about. In fact, in Israel, this well, Jacob's well, the archaeologists have looked at it. It's one of the deepest wells in all of Israel. So she's knowing, like, how's he going to get this water out? He can't even get, he doesn't even have a way to get it. He's asking me to get him water. How is this man going to get this water? Is he better than Jacob? Is he greater than dot, dot, dot? Is he greater than you fill in the blank? How is this man going to get this? It's the question each of us really asks when we come to Christ, before we come to Christ. Is Jesus really greater than blank? Is Jesus really greater than money? Is he really greater than that? Is he really greater than the house I live in? Is he really greater than that relationship that I have with this person? Is he really greater than the status that I'm trying to achieve? You see, this question that she asks is really our question. Is Jesus really greater than all of these things in my life? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is using physical need to show the spiritual realm to this woman. He knows her greatest need and it's not water. He has eternal life to give that will bring lasting, eternal satisfaction. And here's the thing. This woman is starting to get it. She's starting to see it. Because look at what she says next in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here anymore to draw water. It's interesting she says that. And this is the reason why I think she cares so much about coming back to the well. One, it's a chore. Every woman, every person has to do this every day. Go get water from the well. But for her, I think it was more than just the chore of going to the well each day. Because she was going by herself. You see, this well, 
picture, it was a reminder of her, of her isolation and her shame that she was carrying. And here's the thing, she was getting weary of her current situation. She was getting weary of being ignored. She was getting weary of being isolated. She was weary of feeling the shame, of feeling like she had to go by herself. She was tired of that. And every day this was her life. And so what she's really saying to Jesus here is, get me out of this situation. Get me out of this situation that I find myself in. This woman steps out here to receive what Jesus is offering. She is asking for what Jesus wants to give her. She's tired of things that don't really bring lasting satisfaction. And this is the place in the sermon where normally we would cue the band, we'd get the band up here where they'd start playing, we'd have the prayer partners up front, and you'd say, all right, come to the altar, right? Like This is the time. This woman's wanting it. She's wanting deliverance. She's wanting redemption. She's wanting what Jesus has to offer. Now's the time. And then Jesus does the most awkward thing on planet earth like literally the most awkward statement the most awkward transition you can imagine this woman is ready to receive what Jesus has to offer and he makes the situation super awkward in fact it it, it, it tenses up every time I get ready to read this you guys ever been in an awkward situation before I've been in a lot in my life. Some of them are my own doing. Some of them are other people's doings. And I did call my mom before I wanted to share this story with you because I didn't want to put her in a bad light. But she was like, yeah, use it. It's fine. That's what I love about my parents. They're super transparent. But um, we, were, we went to Lowe's together one time. We were working on a house project, and my mom was helping me. And my mom, if you know anything about her, she is almost perfect with the way she words things, and she never puts her foot in her mouth. I can't say that about my dad, but <laughs> she rarely puts her foot in her mouth. And so we go into Lowe's, and we're at the cash register, and I got my card out because it's something I'm buying, and, and she's there, and I'm swiping the card, and it's not working. And, you know, it's, it's so frustrating when you can't get your card to work. I don't know what was wrong with it, and so... I'm messing with the card, and my mom's just trying to make small talk, and she looks at the, the nice cashier, and she says, when are you due? And she's, that woman says, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> and I'm literally, I'm starting to sweat. I'm like, <laughs> I'm swiping the card, and she goes, oh. She goes, <laughs> she goes maybe it's just the clothes you got on. <laughs> And I'm like, literally, I'm, I'm pulling cards out. I'm like, I, you know what? I don't even want this thing anymore. Let's just get out of here. I am so stressed in this moment. And we get in the car, and I look at my mom with as much respect as I can give her, and I'm like, what was that all about? Like, you don't ever ask a woman if she's pregnant. You let them tell you. It was this really awkward moment, and literally... If I could have just, lit what I wanted to do physically at the time, and again, my mom never does this. This is like one of the only times I remember this. But I wanted to take my hand and just put it, <laughs> put it over her mouth. And this is, this is the reason I, I share that with you. This is kind of what I feel like doing when Jesus is about to say what he's about to say. It's so awkward. This woman's ready, right? 
Jesus is about to do the same thing. The woman is ready to receive all Jesus is offering her, and he says the most unthinkable thing to say. Look at what he says in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Here's the thing. We feel it, don't we? 2,000 years later, we're looking at this text. We're feeling the awkwardness. Verse 17, the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have, the one you are living with now, is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you just imagine that moment? The awkwardness of that. Jesus focuses on the ugly unknown in this woman's life. It's the thing in her life she didn't want people to see, especially this guy that she just met. Why do you think she's coming to the well by herself every day? She doesn't want people to really examine what's going on in her life. And we can't skip over this because Jesus says it here. So I'm going to kind of get through this quick. Jesus shows us here in the way he approaches her that physical intimacy and living together are reserved for marriage. Jesus desires purity, honor in your relationships. And Jesus, if this is you, Jesus wants to address this in your life. That if you are intimate and living with someone you are not married to, he desires you to either stop doing that or be married. And that's just a little extra there that, that I can't skip because he's, he's literally implying that in the text. But look at this again, verse 16. Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered Jesus, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now intimately have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus is doing what seems to be cruel here, but this is what this is literally the best thing that could ever happen to this woman. Because there's no conversion without conviction. And what makes this so awkward for all of us in the room is that we've been there with our ugliness before. We've been in that situation. Or what makes it even more awkward is we might be there right now. Jesus knows. Jesus knows we've been there. And here's the truth to make you feel a little more uncomfortable. Jesus knows if you're there right now. Hiding the ugly unknown that you don't want anyone to hear do you think for a minute that changes jesus's view of you you think for a minute that jesus says you know now in 2023 i look at this guy and i'm regretting even going to the cross no he doesn't it doesn't it doesn't catch jesus by surprise your hidden sin doesn't surprise jesus and it doesn't change the way he feels about you Jesus is saying, go, call your husband and come here. Bring your mess to me. Why? Because he knows it's the only path to freedom. Jesus refuses to accept from this woman just a casual belief of him that does not touch and heal her deepest brokenness. He's saying, hey, you want life? 
You want lasting satisfaction? Bring me your husband. Bring me the mess that you're desperately trying to hide. And here's the thing. He works the same way today. Jesus is saying, you want life? You want lasting satisfaction? Bring me your deception. Bring me your social media account. Bring me your eating disorder. Bring me your affair. Bring me your porn addiction. Bring me your junk. Bring that brokenness. Go ahead and bring it to me because I already know what's going on. And we're working so hard to try and hide the very place where God wants to heal. And guys, I, I did this. Parts of my life, I remember being in college, studying to be a pastor, and hiding, just hiding parts of my life. She does the same thing, and she totally deflects here. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yeah, absolutely. He just told you your deepest, darkest stuff. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Here's what she's doing. Can I get you for just a minute, Jesus, to quit paying attention to this thing over here in my life? Can we pay attention to something else? Where am I supposed to worship? Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Is it predestination or is it free will? Is it old earth or is it young earth? Like, let me have a theological debate with you right now so I don't have to deal with the mess in my life. It's easier to get in some theological debate than it is to confront your sin. And, and here's the truth. For some of us, we can go to connect group and spit knowledge like no one's business. But is there something there? To be 99% known is to be unknown. And for some of us, that 1% that 1% alienates us so far from God and others because we've convinced ourselves that if people knew about the 1%, they wouldn't love us. Or Jesus wouldn't love us. Can I just believe in John 3.16 and try to be a moral person and just keep this covered up? That's not what Jesus is asking this woman for. Jesus doesn't ask for some ideal version of you he wants you exactly as you are right now. He wants you to come and not clean yourself up before you get to him. He wants you to come, bring your brokenness, bring your foolishness, bring your stupidity. Just come on. I already know about it. Just bring your husband. Come on. And she tries to deflect and hide her unknown ugly sin. And so do we. I love this. Jesus doesn't get distracted by her deflection. He doesn't say, honey, let's talk about that later. No, he, he doesn't skip a beat. Jesus foretells the future kingdom and immediately re, 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 redirects back to her spiritual need. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's basically saying, hey, Israel was the nation chosen to be the vehicle of salvation and the Savior is going to come through a Jewish person. 
And then he continues, verse 22, but the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is redirecting her affection back to him. He's saying here that the person you worship is greater than the place you worship. That we make no pilgrimage to be right with God. There's no place that we have to go to be right with God. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us. All things. We don't know how she knew this. We don't know where this information came from. We don't know how she got this information. But this is one of the truest, absolute, purest things that she could say right here in this moment. This seed of truth that laid in her heart was about to spring forth fruit. Everything has led to this moment. This is why Jesus needed to go to Samaria. This very moment right here. Verse 26. The most powerful phrase in the entire passage. Jesus said to her. I am he. Who you speak to. Who speak to you. There are seven I am statements. In the Bible. Seven. And it calls back to what Jesus, what God called himself with Moses. You remember what he called himself with Moses? He said, I am. And Jesus has seven of these that he, he proclaims throughout his ministry. And guess who gets the honor of the very first one? It wasn't religious Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It wasn't those disciples that faithfully left everything to follow him. You know who gets the very first one? This woman right here verse 28 then leaving her water jar the woman went back to the town and said to the people come see a man who told me everything I ever did could this be the Messiah it's interesting how her question that went from so much sarcasm to so much hope her shame was gone she didn't care who knew all her stuff. She leaves the water jar. Do we get this? She leaves the water jar, this picture of temporal satisfaction to gain the person of eternal satisfaction. And Jesus forgives and frees all who repent and believe in Samaria those next few days. Verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The barrier between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people, it fell this day, in, in this time and in this place. Samaritans realized that Jesus is Savior, and this woman realized that her greatest need cannot be met by a guy hanging on her arm, but by the man hanging on the cross. 
What about your greatest need? What about your ugly unknown that you're trying to hide? You know what Jesus is saying? Repent, believe. Repent, believe. Have you encountered Jesus? Has this changed who you are? Where are you at this morning? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I know this is a, a tough message. A tough thing to think about. But I believe this because I know my own heart and I know where I've been in my life. I believe there are people in this room just like this Samaritan woman that feel unseen, unheard, isolated. And maybe it's because of what people are doing to you or maybe it's because of your own hidden sin and your own ugly unknown inside of you that you just don't want anyone to find out. And all Jesus is saying is just go ahead and bring it to me. Just go ahead and bring it to me. I already know what's happening. It doesn't change how I feel about you. It doesn't change the power of the cross. In fact, it shows the power of the cross that you would just go ahead and bring it to me. Bring that brokenness. Bring that selfishness. Bring that stupidity. Bring that foolishness. Go ahead and bring it. Bring your husband. Come on. Let's get this right. I read this in my devotion this week, and I want to read it to you in the quiet of this moment Jesus meets you where you are if Jesus asked you to meet him where he is you would be condemned you have no power in yourself to be faithful, wise, good or righteous you're a danger to yourself and others yet he comes to you in your fear he meets you in your doubt he pursues you when you wander. When you sin, he comes to you with conviction and forgiveness. He empowers you when you are weak. He restores you when you are unfaithful. Jesus comes to you at the moment of your salvation. And he comes to you again and again as you journey from grace to grace. This morning, we're going to sing a song. And we're not going to have prayer partners down here. And the reason, the thought behind some of this, some of it became accidental. It just kind of happened between a miscommunication. But I love how this played out. Because in this story, it's not Jesus sending this woman to the prayer partners, right? To the disciples in this moment. No, it's just Jesus and it's just, it's just Jesus and this woman. And they do business together, and that frees her up to go and tell everyone all of that stuff. And she doesn't care anymore. So I'm going to ask you in this moment, we're going to stand, go ahead and stand to your feet. If you need to get around this altar and just pray, feel free to do that. If you just need to sing and worship, that's fine. But I would encourage you this, if you need to do business with God, do business with God. But don't leave this place today without sharing it with a close friend or a pastor, someone here that can pray with you about what it is that you might be hiding in your life. So, Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would use this moment, this holy moment of surrender to you, Lord. God, help us to bring our ugly, unknown stuff 
to you, Lord. That 1% that we care so great that people would know about, Lord. God, help us to know that you already know it. You've already forgiven it. You've already done that work on the cross. Now we're just bringing it to you, Lord. God, help us to be faithful to do that, to repent and believe. And if there's someone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day they find salvation in you, just like this Samaritan woman. Father, we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, let's sing.